Securities offered through Securities America, Inc. Member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc. Investors Advantage and the Securities America companies are separate entities. The opinions and forecasts expressed are those of the author, may not actually come to pass, and should not be construed as a recommendation of any security or investment plan. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, John Grace and Daniel Medina here on Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. So delighted you could spend some time with us this afternoon and happy turkey to you and yours. And please stay safe, okay? Because we want to see you next week. We want to see you next year. We want to see you next Thanksgiving. So please stay safe through this Thanksgiving so we can tell the story about it together at the next Thanksgiving. So yes, we like taking the mystery out of money management, making some sense out of all this silliness. And so many times we get lost in the weeds, looking at the market that appears to have, uh, you know, the only way up is up. I mean, all trees grow to the sky, right? So we like to give a perspective as far as what's going on now, but mostly how you can use what's going on with what you see and some things that maybe you haven't seen that merit your attention. So let's pick up with what we do, which is to bring into perspective the report on how the markets are doing because the news does a great job of talking about on a day-to-day basis, which doesn't give or offer you much of a perspective in terms of what's going on over the long term. So we like to bring it uh, into focus by looking at how did we start the year 1120? Where are we today as of the market uh, operating in real time right now? And we see that uh, the Dow is having a tough time. It's off uh, about uh, 0.63%. It's a loss, 100, almost 190 points today, uh, down from its high of just yesterday, 30,000. And year to date, it's up 4.57%. Now, remember that number because it helps cast a picture of what's going on. And, and, and what we want to draw your attention to is this disparity or uh, this, this dispersion in terms of how the market is not doing the same thing at the same time. The S&P, Standard Poor's 500, uh, is off about uh, 6.9% as uh, 304 Eastern Time right now. Uh, just went to 7%. And that means that the year-to-date number is uh, 12.28%. That's a very good number. And the S&P 500 is usually a very good barometer to look at the market to see how the market's doing because now we're looking at 500 stocks as opposed to 30 with the Dow or a limited number uh, with uh, with NASDAQ primarily being uh, tech stocks. The S&P 500 is a is a better bellwether, if you will. And then to the extreme, uh, the NASDAQ looks like it's uh, back oh, right at near or at its all-time high. It's actually up today. Again, the Dow and the S&P are down today. It's up 56. And year-to-date, it's up 34.77%. Now, that's a ride straight to the moon. Uh, anything that's up 34%. And, and we're not even done with this year, we'll talk about how we think it might finish, but that's certainly been a very, very, very good ride. So we wanna uh, kind of put things in perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna ask uh, Daniel to talk about what's been going on with Tesla in the face that, I mean, it, you, you've gotta make sure you see the whole picture. This comes from AARP uh, and submits, this was just uh, earlier this week, 
that nearly half of American households headed by those 55 and older have no retirement savings. That's right, zero, zip, nada, no dinero, okay? That's hard to imagine. So what we need to do is not only look at the very rich people and what they're doing, we also want to focus, actually, we would say more attention on the average people because there's just so many more average people doing average things. And it gets very easy to get lost looking at the people we know in in many cases are the outliers. They're doing above average things. And because we only know them and we only talk about what they do, we extrapolate that story to say, that's what everybody's doing. No, the people you know and your family and whatnot, the people you went to school with are probably outliers. They're above average. We need to see what's going on with the average American. And, And here's one way to look at it. The average income for American households, no matter where you live in the country, is approximately $60,000, Now, I don't care if you're in Ohio or in Long Beach, all right? I mean, 65000 for a family of four, whether or not there's one or two people working, just doesn't cut much mustard as we try to get ready for, for uh, Thanksgiving. And notice, in real time, we're witnessing all these people who are coming out absolutely hungry, uh, that have that, that do not have a Thanksgiving. So be very thankful for your full refrigerator. Just recognize that uh, that's one of the things we want to rec- we want to see that we're 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 doing better than most. Uh, and yet we need to have the averages do better than what they're doing because that helps us all. So Daniel, in terms of an outlier, you drive a Tesla. You like Tesla. Give us a sense of that extraordinary story, which may be something that portends what else is going on in the market in a more meaningful way. This, this is a really interesting story. And like, like you said, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of Tesla as a company uh, and the car. I've driven a Tesla for about a year and a half now, and I can't, I can't say enough good things about, about the car itself. Uh, I tell everyone, everyone that, I, that, that asks about it that it's, it's a great car. And I will probably never go back to a gas-powered car after driving the Tesla, it's it's that it's that impressive of a vehicle, and I think that that's where the market's going. But the story of Tesla, from a stock perspective, is a really interesting one, and it's had a phenomenal year after a big reverse split. Now it's back at all time highs, trading today at about five seventy seventy two, and this is after the split, so it's 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 an interesting story, and they're getting admitted to the S and P next week. Um, when we look back at companies admitted to the S&P. Before you go there, Daniel, and, and Tesla's what, up how much this year? What kind of gain have we seen? Last I looked, oh. is that right? The last I looked, it was up 400%. That sound, I think we're farther than that now. <laughs> well, see, that was a minute ago. number off the top of my head. <laughs> right. That was a minute ago. But that's not the story we want you to focus on. It's this larger issue that I interrupt Daniel to explain that we think is much more interesting and as I say, maybe a indicator of what is around the road ahead. Well, I just I just checked, and you're you're right. That was a, that was a minute ago. Right now, according to Yahoo Finance, Tesla's up about five hundred and eighty-five percent for the year. Oh my goodness, that was yesterday's news. What can I say? <laughs> right. So when when we go back when we go back and look at what's what's going on here, and we look at different other booming markets and economies where when companies are being added to the S&P, it kind of gives us a little glimpse on what we might expect. 
Now, to put this in perspective, to put Tesla's valuation in perspective, we're going to talk about PE ratios for a second. And what PE stands for is price to earnings. So it's how how it's one way to evaluate the price of a company's stock versus how much it's earning. So if a company's earning $100 a uh, hundred dollars per share, then that's that. That's how we figure out. We take our share price, we take the earnings, the total earnings of the company, and we divide it by our total shares outstanding. And that's how we figure out what our P, our forward PE ratio is. Now, the, the average PE ratio for the S and P five hundred is about twenty one times. So that means companies are making about twenty one times what their what their price, what their stock price is for Tesla. Now, this is an old article, so this was from last week, but the their forward PE ratio was 113 times. What? 113 times their earnings, which means their price is far, far, far more inflated than the other companies in the S&P. And so what does that suggest? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. Okay? It's, it's really hard to tell. Another way, another way we look at it is the total valuation of the company. The total valuation for Tesla is more than Toyota, Volkswagen, and GM together with a fraction of the sales. <laughs> God bless Elon Musk. Number two in wealth in the world, right? Amazing. It's sim simply amazing. So when we look back at, the, the say, say, for example, the tech boom, we look at Yahoo. They were admitted to the S&P 500 uh, in December 1999. That's four months before the, te before the tech bust. Hmm. We look back at the mid 2000s. We look at companies, like the real estate companies like CBE, CBRE Group, Boston Properties, Kimco Realty, Realty, all all real estate companies admitted to the S and P 500 right before the real estate bust in 2000, financial crisis in 2008. So what you're suggesting, I mean, we don't know the future, and that's so important to say, right? But if we can look at what we learned in the past, we may see a pattern here that helps us recognize how this disparity is unfolding. And when you have leaders out way off on the moon, right? And we're trying to get by here with COVID and all this drama on this earth, uh, at least looking at history, these, uh, these, these stocks that went uh, straight up come straight down. And, and so what happened to them? And what, 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 do, what are we um, worried about that might happen here this time around? Well, when we look at we look at back in two thousand, early two thousand, two thousand eight, and and right now we see we see this super very large, very rapid growth in in these companies, which suggests that they're overvalued. And when they get so severely overvalued, when we get a correction, they they get devalued very quickly because they were so severely overvalued. Well, and let me put that in perspective, folks. Uh, Daniel joined us. He's our main math man in September 2006. I well remember 2000 to 2002. And here's, the, here's what I recall. So the Dow and the S&P in the last five years of the 90s, and roughly about five or six years, about the time when uh, Greenspan was talking about, federal chair Greenspan, Alan Greenspan, was talking about this irrational exuberance, and people were going, what are you talking about? Everything's beautiful. Everything's going to the moon. There's, there's no way you could lose any money. Well, with the Dow and the S&P, for that last five years, let's say you had $100,000, 94, 95, and by the end of 99, your $100,000 was doubled about $200,000. Not a bad deal. NASDAQ, on the other hand, quadrupled 
Now we're going to ask Daniel to do the math here because it takes a minute to get this. So again, $100,000 S&P Dow doubled to 200,000 in about a five-year period. The NASDAQ quadrupled, same $100,000 investment, quadrupled to $400,000. And then starting around February, if I'm not mistaken, of 2000, by the end of uh, 2002, we saw the NASDAQ off 80%. So Daniel, if, if we got to a value of 400,000, and then we experience a righteous loss in about 30 months of 80%, what's left? 400,000 from, from 400,000 down 80%? Yes. So then we left at 80,000. 80, you put in 100, it went to 400, and in short order, you have 80,000. Have a nice day. Now, you have to, that blows your mind, okay? But that's what's happened in our recent past. Could this be in the cards around the corner? Stay tuned. We'll see. But that's why we're doing everything we can, like being on programs like this and, you know, answering questions for folks so that they can see what's really going on here. And more importantly, what do I need things to do for me, regardless of what the market does? In fact, if the market goes, uh, you know, way south to you know where, does it have to take my money with it? Or can I limit the losses? Let's say instead of being off 80%, where if we're off 80%, Daniel, what kind of gain is needed to get back to even? A whole lot. You need, <laughs> uh, I believe that's, if you're off 80, you need to quadruple, you need to quintuple your money. So you have to go up 500 times. 500% gain is necessary to get back to your high water mark. That's mind blowing. So the whole point is one of the questions that the industry, as far as I'm concerned, only been doing this since 1979, does not ask, which I think is the most important question we should ask, is what kind of loss is okay with you? What kind of loss might you be able to live with? So for example, I can do this part of the equation. If the, if the loss is off is a 20%, drawdown, as opposed to an 80% drawdown, instead of needing 500% after an 80% loss, with a 20% loss, the gain needs to be 25% to get back to our, our high water mark. So the whole point here is let's really take a moment, maybe that's some of the good news that's come out of this pandemic, for us to look at our situations and, and decide what kind of loss is livable and how might we design the portfolio so it's not a runaway loss to finding out how low we can go with an 80% loss, for example, if it can be limited to 20% or less, well, the ride is just not as vicious. I mean, I love roller coasters, but I only go to the parks to ride them. I do not want to be on a roller coaster every day and certainly don't want my clients on a roller coaster every day. So that's why we thought this was very important and worthy of your attention. So let's look at some other examples. And I'm very pleased that we have uh, with us on the call today, Jason Van Dusen, Senior Vice President at Blue Rock Capital in Newport Beach. And I'm, I, I want to talk about some of the things ordinary investors can do. But before we get into the specifics of how some programs work, let's look at what I would say the smart money does. And you know, one example of that, again, this is not a recommendation, but one example of, I would say, the smart money is a Yale Endowment. They typically do a report once a year, ending June 30, 
the report typically comes out around the end of September every year, and, and we've been watching it for like the last 10 years. So here we go. Uh, what we can see now is uh, that the Yale Endowment earned a 6.8% investment return net of fees for the year ending June 30, 2020, and the endowment increased from 30.3 billion on June 30, 2019, to 31.2 billion on June 30th, 2020. And, and they, if you, if, you, if you follow this, it's very interesting because they explain a lot about what they used to do and how they used to think and how they used to have their portfolios comprised. But it has changed over the years. In fact, in fact it's changed a lot over the past 20 years. Now, Yale submits that their results remain in the top tier of institutional investors and that uh, over the 10-year period, the Yale endowment has returned about 10.9% per annum over the 10 years ending June 30. So, and the market for, and the returns for the market was about 13.7% annually for the same period of time with stocks. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Uh, you know what, we're going to have to take a break real quick. Uh, we'll come back with the, the data on uh, how Yale has uh, sliced their pie, if you will, as we get ready for, for Thanksgiving. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break, and, and we'll be right back to go into this piece of the puzzle and then have Jason explain what it is they do. So see you on the other side of the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YBPoor.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, folks. John Grayson, Daniel Medina here with Fiscal Fitness on Voice America. So, 
glad you had some time to spend with us. And we're glad you're tuning in either live or looking or reading, you know, I'm sorry, listening um, afterwards at your convenience. So I want to dive into this uh, arrangement or this discussion in terms of what the smart money is doing is represented by me as Yale Endowment, you know, again, $31 billion, that's with a B, that's a whole lot of money. Uh, what are they doing and how, what can we learn? as uh, retail investors from institutional investing. And we have Jason Van Buren on the phone that will, uh, to explain some of the, some Van Dusen, I'm sorry, uh, to explain exactly what some firms do. But be before we do that, Daniel, give us uh, some, um, what, what are the, the points that you wanna make in terms of how people can contact us, please? You can contact us uh, through our website, ybpoor.com. Uh, you can send us an email, contact at ybpoor.com at ybpoor.com. We are on Facebook under Investors Advantage and we're at Twitter at Money On Course. And, and by the way, I do have a, a, a great new book out. I wrote it, so it's a great new book, okay? It's a uh, uh, fiscal, I'm sorry, Making Your Finances Make Sense. It's available at Amazon, either in the Kindle version or in paperback. Um, love for you to have a copy and if you take Daniel's suggestion and send us a question or a comment or something, a topic that you want to make sure we cover with your email address. We will make a gift for you of my book by the Kindle version. I mean, you know, tomorrow's Black Friday. We're raving about the discounts, right? But what Trump's... Uh, Discounts, of course, would be free. And uh, we have something that's free for those who'd like to participate. So, all right, let's go into looking at this Yale endowment. Again, um, they, they've uh, outperformed their benchmark by not much, but they have one. Notice they have one. How many of us as individual investors have a benchmark? Oh, I just want to make money. No, how much do you want to make? And what are we measuring against so that you can see that you can afford to be satisfied? or not, or some things need to be changed so that you recognize where your bar is. So I love to have this conversation with just about anyone because no one looks at this information and it's, it's fascinating in terms of how it's vastly different than we might imagine. And so I begin by saying, if you were on the board of Yale, looking at their endowment, again, it's uh, reportedly comes out once a year. What do you imagine, any number will do, that Yale has as a percentage in U.S. equities? Now, frankly, when I answered that question, I certainly thought it would be no less than 30%. And as I say, we've been watching this data over the last 10 years or so. And each time we go back to look, guess what happens with domestic equity as a percentage? It keeps going down. <laughs> On this current report, we see 2.25% to U.S. stocks. Now, remember, the securities industry have been in it since 1979. We typically recommend that everybody's well diversified with what? 60% stocks and 40% bonds. I'm going to say not so much, but that seems to be pretty typical, as though nothing has changed. So the 2.25 to U.S. stocks. So the next question is, what do they have in bonds and cash? 7.5%. Notice that's a pretty small bet too. And then we might look at uh, foreign equity and it's about 11.75%. Uh, that one is higher, I think, that most people would suggest or, or think in terms of. When we look at, uh, they have natural resources, four and a half. Their real estate percentage is 9.5. Leverage buyouts is 17 and a half. Venture capital and absolute return are both at 23 and a half, which they suspect this will be their portfolio throughout uh, fiscal year 2021. Those are their targets. But please notice a couple of things here. 
well, actually three things, how low the exposure is to traditional asset classes like U.S. equities and bonds. And then please notice that I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight asset classes, which means that that, that comprises an eight-legged stool, yes, and certainly an eight-legged stool is going to be stronger than a two- or three-legged stool. I think this is not rocket science. And then please notice that their exposure to any one asset class, there are no big bets here. 23.5% out of $31 billion. All their bets are relatively small, but they're more diversified than most. So our one-two punch to help people prepare for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen, given what we learned in 2000, 2008, first, uh, fourth quarter 2018, first quarter 2019, are, are two steps. One, have active management strategies to all things liquid, so that someone is looking at your money daily and asking the question, are we putting fuel in this fire or water? Do we want to put, you know, go for gusto for the gains or do we want to limit the losses? That's a primary question. And then number two, diversify unlike you've ever diversified before. Now that's personal, but if you don't think in terms of what might make sense to you or look for examples that broaden your thinking or you're stuck with those who tell you it's 60% stocks, 40% bonds, that's as diversified as you need to be. Well, maybe other ways of thinking might work better. So with that, let's bring uh, Jason Van Dusen in from uh, Blue Rock Capital in Newport Beach, California. And please, Jason, describe for us the work that you do. And then Daniel and I will be asking you some questions so that we can dig deeper into the details. I appreciate the introduction here. So again, Jason Van Dusen here, Senior Vice President at Blue Rock Capital. Uh, my role within the firm, we have a, a few different vertical strategies that essentially we're providing access uh, really of an institutional pedigree to the retail client. So, and it's typically not been accessible before uh, really until more of now along with Blue Rock providing that to the retail client. So my role uh uh, as I, I call it, coffee to cocktails. I'm up bright and early in the morning until late at night speaking on behalf of uh, Blue Rock to not only financial advisors such as yourself, John and Dan, but also to the retail client to have them understand the benefits of where real estate can come into play in a well-diversified portfolio. Because diversi uh, diversification, as you, uh, as you mentioned, and as, a, as an equity investor myself, you got to have it. The conventional 60-40 model is just very outdated. Well, and to your point, I mean, there are some people we follow who are suggesting that the next 10 years could be, with traditional investments, pretty much a flat decade. I mean, you know, just zero or one or two percent. That's your annual annualized return. So, I who again, no one can see the future, but that suggests to me that maybe we need to put more tools in our toolbox so that maybe there's something that might uh, be a little more consistent or give us some of those returns that we've accustomed to, even though it's in a, what we would say, a non-traditional asset class. We, we call those alternatives. Alternatives would be anything other than cash bonds or stocks. Uh, they're not all bad. They're not all good. It, it's just, as I say, a way to put more legs underneath your portfolio stool. So looking at uh, you know real estate cap rates uh, over the last 10 years, 
years, the treasury, the history of today. From a number standpoint, is there still a compelling argument for real estate? I mean, what are some of the advantages of real estate investing in 2020, particularly in this COVID environment? So I'll start with the second part first. Conventionally, when you look at the opportunity that you have in the real estate, it really hasn't changed. If I'm going to be buying into investment real estate, one of the big things that you're getting into it for is income, right? I'm looking to get income on a consistent basis, hopefully on a monthly basis, and I have tenants, maybe one or multiple, that are providing income depending upon the asset class that you have. But, but interestingly enough, with that income, you're getting tax advantage income at that. You've got the basic pass-through of depreciation, which is huge. So you're not fully taxed on the income that you're receiving. And then ultimately, if I can get appreciation, which is typically the end game in real estate once a, uh, when I decide to sell, then I've really been able to uh, get the opportunity that I'm looking for in real estate. Now, what I tell you is that it's interesting to look, you know, obviously we, we have to sometimes look in the rear view before we look in the windshield in regards to investing. If you look at where we were back prior to the great financial crisis, the spread, okay, the spread between cap rates or in essence, the income generation, it's a tool, a measure of getting a sense of how much income you're generating off of real estate versus the 10 year, there was maybe out about a, half a percent, 50 basis point spread. So to me, and I asked you, John or Dan, if, if, if you could invest in the 10 year at four and a half, or I could buy into real estate at five and get 5%, which would you rather do? Those are Based both upon the risk. Net numbers, right? Yeah, net numbers. If I was going to generate four and a half percent in the treasuries or 5% into real estate, which of the two would you likely do? Oh, geez, I don't know. Probably, I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'd probably do the 10-year, right? It, it, from a security standpoint, there's not the, the, the risk premium is not there of investing in real estate, right, compared to the 10-year. Now, okay. look at, so historically, it's been about, over the last 20 years, historically, the spread between the 10-year, which right now is only about, what, 85 basis points or so? Right. Right. Uh, has been about 275, so 2.5 to 2.75%. So the spread has been significant enough to make an argument in real estate. Where we are today, you're sub one on the 10-year, and you're about 45 to 5% in real estate. There's over a 400% spread between the 10-year and real estate. The risk premium is significant, which makes the argument you want to be buying into real estate right now but you want to be buying in specific asset classes and strategies because everything is different. Well, let me ask Daniel. I know he has a question right in line with where you left off. Daniel? So on that, on that note, so looking at commercial real estate through this whole pandemic, the headlines have been pretty bad. How has commercial real estate done? And are there any specific sectors that have done better? Yeah, see, I, that's where actually I've spent a significant amount of my time on, well, not on the road here, I'd say virtually on the road, if you will, <laughs> through Zoom and, and on the radio, has been talking about every asset class is different. To, call, to look at the headlines, you would, you would never invest into real estate because the headlines are real estate down, real estate down, but that's not the case across the board. Every real estate asset class is different. Look at apartments. Apartments class A which actually we have nearly a $3 billion portfolio at Blue Rock that's publicly traded in multifamily. 
but it's class A multifamily. Class A multifamily, the tenants or the renters, that is, are typically generating four to five times what they pay in rent. So think about what they did. They all did what we did. We downloaded Zoom or an iteration of it. And an hour later, you were off to the races and going back to work and working from home. Some of your lower end, so in real estate in class A versus B and C, a lot of it is the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but typically in class A, they're highly amenitized properties with the pools and the gyms and the clubhouses and the, um, you know, the high ceilings, granite, town, granite countertops, hardwood floors, whereas in your lower end complexes, typically there's no amenities, no, you know, uh, park uh, garages, and you're typically just walking straight into your unit and they're a little bit dated of units. So in the lower end, typically those are more of your service workers and individuals that are living there by necessity, not by choice. They're not making all that much more than what they're paying in rent, maybe about two times. So those assets have struggled. But in Class A, they've performed very well. Okay. Uh, I know on our publicly traded fund, only about 1% of our entire portfolio is on any sort of a payment plan. We're not in a forbearance on any properties. We're not going into default because of uh, uh, tenants not paying their rent. That's uh, for us in one of our portfolios, which is uh, called the Blue Rock Total Income Plus Fund. That's one of our largest allocations. The second that we love is industrial. Industrial is self-explanatory. We're stuck at home. We're under our roof having to watch, you know, uh, whatever Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu specials are on. But on top of that, we have to order online. I know for me, it looks like I have an addition on my home with all the boxes that come on a daily basis that we're un unboxing and unpacking. So industrialists thrived. Certain retail has performed very well. Okay. So certain retail has done very well. Indoor malls, they've seen a little bit of a pullback. But looking at the outdoor mall, which I was just at Fashion Island where I live last night, there was a two and a half hour wait to get into Apple, a two hour wait to get into Lululemon. I mean, the consumer spending right now is where it was prior to COVID. Okay. Grocery stores have done well. Uh, uh, the actual grocery store itself, the, the Costco's, the CVS is right. Those have all done well. So again, the only asset class that I really see that's had some headwinds has been office. Our argument is that ultimately at the end of the day, from a productivity standpoint, it's better to be an office that's in your central business district versus in your outside tertiary markets, meaning something very far out. Um, and I know, uh, I don't know what you're feeling, John and Dan, but the, the, the efficiency, the competitiveness, the camaraderie is not there uh, when you're working virtually as it is in an office. So I know many are getting, looking forward to getting back. What used to take 20 minutes to get an answer, walking down the hallway can sometimes take days. So Jason touched on essential workers, and it's worth noting, folks, that Daniel and I have been so impressed with these folks that do not have the luxury of being able to work from home. They have to be on the line every day, whether it's a fire person or a law enforcement or medical or retail, uh, you know, restaurants. The question is, how are they going to do financially? So what we're providing, and I don't see anybody else doing this, by the way, is we are providing uh, financial planning for all frontline essential workers at no cost. So we'll spend up to 90 minutes, hour and a half, looking at uh, how are we gonna make sure you have a strong financial future? What happens in the event uh, one of the breadwinners has the nerve to go to heaven? 
How do we keep all this stuff and all these people from sliding down everything you were holding up between the two of you? And then if you have children, how are we going to make sure that they get to finish college and everybody gets to smile, laugh, and cry because no one's in any debt. <laughs> so that's something we're doing for all essential workers. We want you to please feel free to share that. We're going to go to break, but when we come, and when we come back, I'm going to have Jason answer this question. He can prepare for it. We want to look backwards at 2008 in terms of what happens with your rents. So look in the rearview mirror, and then let's look through the windshield from the standpoint of, of where, where do you see real estate going uh, around the bid? We'll go to break right now. We'll be right back real quick. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit ybpoor.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's ybpoor.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. John Grace and Daniel Medina here with Fiscal Fitness on Voice America. Delighted that you could spend some time with us this afternoon because we're all trying to get a handle on our finances. And maybe this COVID thing, I'm calling it a disaster of epic proportions because we have no idea how it's going to turn out, but it's live and it's in color and it's in real time. But, you know, maybe it gives many of us a chance to kind of actually look at what we're doing with our money. Because in America, we're really expert at spin baby spin. Jason talked about what's going on in, in some of the retail environments right now, but we don't save at all. And, and, and one thing that people should be doing, and some people are doing this, is recognizing, like we were working, Daniel and I, with one couple 
there are essential workers in mid-30s, haven't really saved much, don't have much of a pension, can see two things. One, they want to retire at 70, and two, we're going to take into account Social Security. And it turns out they are accustomed to spending about $100,000 a year, and they've got about 30, 35 years to go to get to where they want to be so that they can see how much money do we have to put behind door number one, where we can see the kind of income that we're accustomed to earning, that income comes to us without us having to work. And in their case, the answer was $2.6 million. That becomes a target for the most part. Most investors don't have a target, don't see a target. And then we worked it out from the standpoint of what do we have to do to get from point A to point B to arrive on time safely? And that means for them to set aside 15% of their $100,000, $15,000 a year, divided by 12 is $1,300 a month, get a 7% return on average. That's something you want to look at every year. But if those things happen, they're on track for 2.6. We, we think that's so much more valuable than those of us. We, uh, one program that Daniel and I did, we asked the question, are you truck poor? Because I came across a good friend of my son who is paying $1,300 a month for a $100,000 truck. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and he doesn't use the bed of the truck and it's gorgeous. You could serve Thanksgiving dinner in the back of the truck. It's absolutely magnificent. I'm just saying we've got our priorities askew. So <laughs> let's get back to our subject here with uh, Jason Van Dusen. And we want to ask him a question, Senior Vice President with Blue Rock Capital, looking at commercial real estate from the past, what, what happened with Blue Rock in terms of like 2008, real estate got uh, adjusted downward, bonds got hurt and stocks got crushed. I want him to tell us how Blue Rock held up in that period of time, might help us see how Blue Rock might hold up in the period of time like that, should it have ever happen again. And then let's look through uh, the windshield in terms of what, are, what, do you, what does Blue Rock see for commercial real estate in the future? Jason? I, I absolutely love, by the way, that example that you have, because that, that really ties into, and maybe I'll address the, first, the, the second part of the question here first, because um, you look at the largest population group that we have today, which is the millennial population, and it's their thought pattern is much different than what the baby boomer population was at, at their age at this time, which is it's all about experiential living right now, right? It's the social world. It's the Instagrams, the online social, social media. It's all about posting. It's not about doing what you guys are doing and you guys are doing uh, the, some of the most essential work, which is helping people ride uh, for their retirement, right? And so ultimately, and educating people on what they should be doing. And that's really the, uh, really the way that we here at Blue Rock, and, and we actually have a unique relationship with a company called Mercer. They have about 15 trillion of assets, and that's with a T, trillion dollars of assets under advisory. And they work with the pensions endowments, the biggest institutions in the world. And talking with them uh, a few months ago, they had a really unique perspective. And when they invest in real estate, it's not just looking at the financials of properties and the Argus runs and looking at all the detailed information in regards to acquiring a property, but sometimes you have to take a philosophical look at investing and go, where is the world going to? Well, the millennial population is the biggest. It's very difficult right now for a millennial to buy a home, right? To afford the down payment uh, and, and especially with riddled with student debt. So what they're doing right now is that they're renting and they're renting apartments and they're renting by 
uh, not only necessity, but more importantly, by choice of where they want to live. It's no longer congratulations and you graduate college. This is where you're moving to to have this job. It's now I want to move to Nashville. I want to move to Orlando, Denver, Boston, and I want to live here and then I'll find the job. So apartments, we feel, will continue to be a strong play, especially with the millennials. Again, they're not sitting there. You know, the, the desire to live 30 to 45 minutes out of the city with a white picket fence, two, do- you know, two kids, a dog, and, and a John Deere mower just ain't there anymore, right? So it's all about living close to where I can walk to, you know, the, the restaurants and the retail shopping uh, bars. And obviously, it's a little bit more pre-COVID than ever. Um, so also, it's buying online. Everything's instant. Everything's on demand. And so that's where certain asset classes like we feel industrial will be the strongest play. I'm not saying that retail is going to go away, but uh, it's not as heavy of a, a priority as some other asset classes will be. So we really tailor our portfolio to where we feel, where is the world going to? And then we go ahead and we uh, you know, build out our portfolios and dynamically, as you mentioned earlier in the show, dynamically manage accordingly. And what happened with 08? Uh, what did you see rents do? How did you guys manage that uh, surprise? Yeah, so what's interesting in 2008 and 2009, and, uh, and really if you look at across all asset classes there, everybody was affected in some way uh, in, uh, in regards to the great financial crisis, but some more than others. So typically your high-touch real estate, if you will, i.e. your movie theaters, your retail, your shopping, those were an office. Your consumer-driven strategies were typically more affected, some down over 40% in value uh, or even 50% in some cases compared to others that nothing really jumped to the chasm, if you will, of the 2008-2009 drop, but some didn't have as impactful as a drop. Those like apartments, those like industrial, healthcare, there are certain strategies, self-storage, that have done very well through uh, the great financial crisis and were less impacted than others. Um, We here at Blue Rock, our typical main concentration has been more in the multifamily space. While we have ventured in others, the predominant allocation has been in multifamily. We have a unique story in that we've been around since 2002, but every single year since inception at our firm, we've been profitable. We haven't had debt on a corporate level. So through COVID, and I can give you a quick update on that, we have not let go of a single employee at, at Blue Rock. And that was a big uh, part of the, the response from our executive team, more importantly, our CEO, Ramin Kampar, and that he goes, uh, team, I will not disrupt the lifestyle of my uh, employees. I want to make sure everyone's protected through this pandemic, and we will not let go of a single employee. And actually, we've been hiring. And that's through cash flow as opposed to depletion of capital or borrowings? Correct. All right. Correct. All right. We are generating enough within our various <laughs> offerings. We have nearly $9 billion of assets under advisory as a firm, well diversified. Um, and again, we've really been able to tailor our strategies that have been more on the, uh, call it recession resistant. There's no such thing as recession proof in real estate, but on the recession-resistant side that has held up very well. Okay. And I know Daniel has a question relative to real estate, how we're so used to buying, like my first piece of property was a triplex. That was fun. I'll probably never do it again, or as opposed to uh, using some of the uh, investment structures. Go ahead, Daniel. 
So Jason, for retail investors, commercial real estate can be difficult because they can typically only buy it one of a few ways, either directly through a small through a small private deal or through a fund. So what are you guys doing? What are you guys seeing? And what's the institutional world doing? And what are you guys seeing in terms of pensions, endowments, and institutions? Yeah, so typically, and, and as John mentioned, I mean, typically as a, as a retail client, when we're, other than buying our primary home, which is probably one of the biggest achievements and biggest investments somebody has in their life, if they do have the unique opportunity, they've had enough cash on hand, they may buy a duplex or a triplex or, or an investment piece of property, and typically in the same area that you live, right? And so uh, ultimately, though, that's been really your only way other than buying publicly traded funds, right, on, on the exchange. But again, when you buy publicly traded, you're subject to the volatility of the market. What the institutions do is that they're investing in strategies that us as a retail client will never, ever get access to, at least on a direct level. Um, it's almost like as a golfer and just watching the Masters uh, the other weekend, which is such a special, uh, special tournament, and Dustin Johnson brought it home. Imagine as a retail client getting to play in the big leagues right? Getting to play with Mookie Betts, if you will, getting to play with uh, uh, Tiger and Phil and Dustin Johnson. Well, we can't do that, okay? And the big hurdle that you have in the institutional world, at least in regards to real estate, what most are doing is that, that they are buying into, as a part of a diversifier, are private institutionally, so not publicly traded, but private institutionally managed real estate funds. These are real estate funds that have some of them 50 plus year track records. Okay, 50, these aren't brand new deals. 50 plus year track records. Okay, you have, the minimums to get in can be five to 25 million. Multi-billion in size, some are 30, 40 billion dollars in size. So to think about that as a retail client, and like you said, John, the average uh, income right now is what, 65, 68,000? Somewhere in that zone? Somewhere in that neighborhood, yeah. To be able to afford the $5 million minimum just ain't going to happen. Not at all. As a retail client. So to be able to invest in that is just not going to happen. And so, and you even have an index that's out there that's 200 and, or excuse me, $702 billion in size in the private real estate fund, 1,200 plus properties that are out there or portfolios that is to choose from. So, the institutional private real estate uh, uh, portfolio uh, opportunity is where a lot of the institutions are doing. And we've actually structured a fund here at Blue Rock that's actually been able to provide access. We've created a, a conduit, a vehicle, a catcher mitt, whatever you want to call it, to provide access for the retail client to what these institutions are doing. And it's being sub-managed part of the portfolio by the biggest institutional investment firm out there. And that's Mercer. Okay. So Jason, yeah, go you, ahead, Daniel. So what are you guys doing on the retail side to give access to what the institutions are doing? Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was just mentioning here. <clears throat> and I'll go into the, a little bit of the details on the product. So, Looking at the track record, and I'll take a step back here. So looking at the track record, because I, again, as an equity investor, you know, today we saw a little bit of a pullback on the Dow, but, and it's constantly changing, right? We saw during COVID in six days, we went from flirting with 30,000 Dow all the way down to 18 intraday. It's over a 40% loss. 
on a portfolio. Think about all the hard work that you put in. So there is a, and, and that's what kind of keeps us up at night, I guess I'd say, is that the, the uh, something that is unexpected that we can't plan for. Uh, so how do we build a portfolio to where, whether in a bull market or a bear, that we can go ahead and plan for it. So what we did is we constructed a, a portfolio that's investing since 2012 diversifying itself and dynamically managing itself with the help of Mercer, a $15 trillion sub-manager, to buy into these institutionally managed private real estate funds that are diversified amongst asset class, geographically throughout the U.S., and um, provide income to clients, tax-advantaged income at that. We pay the income on a quarterly basis, but you also have liquidity on a quarterly basis. Now, it's not full liquidity, there's a percentage based upon the amount of capital or outstanding shares that we've raised, but there's still liquidity. Unlike some of your other uh, uh, retail accessible funds that they can shut down liquidity whenever they, whenever they want, we can here. But you can, for, for a, a mere $2,500, diversify yourself across over $200 billion of assets, income that's coming in quarterly of over 5%. It's five and a quarter currently. And by the way, it's been uninterrupted through COVID. Again, tax advantage, you can reduce your risk tolerance. You can actually see total returns as well and, and reduce your volatility. And over the last 40 years in institutional private real estate funds, there's only been four instances, four instances, guys. Through, think about it. We went through now COVID. We went through 9-11, Y2K, the great financial crisis, savings and loans. Only been four years ever that institutional private real estate funds saw down years. Four. And your entry fee again is twenty five hundred. Twenty five hundred. And to be at a pool of how large again? Over two hundred billion dollars of well diversified real estate that's very dynamically managed. Our largest allocations are in the two more recession resistant strategies like apartments and industrial. We have really, I'd say, a fraction of a basis point in. Uh, or, or a couple of basis points into hotels, so really nothing, nothing in movie theaters, et cetera. Uh, very little exposure into office, uh, and most of it being in uh, apartments and industrial. And we're single digit into retail exposure. All righty, Jason Van Dusen, Senior VP with uh, Blue Rock Capital. So glad you could join us this afternoon and fill in the blanks in terms of some of the opportunities that many people may not be aware of. And we like looking at uh, institutions and what we can learn from them and maybe apply as opposed to doing it ourselves where there's no professional management and probably there's more emotion driving the decisions than, than real intelligence. Uh, one final point, Jason? If you, if you want information, please go to bluerock.com and everything of our uh, uh, various offerings are there if you want to take a look at them. Beautiful. So, folks, thanks so much for joining John Grace and Daniel Medina here. We'll be back next Wednesday. Please continue to do the good work that you're doing with the three W's. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and watch your distance. So we'll see you, you here next Friday, and we'll all be together for a very robust Thanksgiving a year from now. So let's get from here to there. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. Daniel and I will be here next week with another fine interview. See you then. <laughs> you for tuning to fiscal fitness please join john grace and co-host daniel medina again next wednesday at 3 p.m eastern time and 12 noon pacific time on the voice america business channel have an excellent week